Hello, and welcome to another episode of A Dash of Science. I'm your host, Chris. Each week, my co-host, Carrie, or a special guest will help me explore amazing things in STEM, history, or even art through the lens of science and logic in a way that everyone can understand and enjoy. So sit back, relax, and enjoy A Dash of Science. Hello, citizen scientists. Welcome to this week's episode. Uh, I'm your host, Chris. And this is Carrie. And this week, we're continuing uh, our show in honor of NASA's Day of Remembrance, which was February 7th. Uh, unfortunately, due to some weather issues we're having here, uh, we weren't able to push our episode last week because, well, our internet was down for like five days. Stupid. Yes, it was very stupid. Uh, so what this means is that in order to keep the schedule that we had, we will be doing... Uh, Challenger this week, uh, but Columbia, we will do a special episode for uh, on next year for NASA Day of Remembrance uh, so that we have something to do then and also to keep with our new thing that we are doing as of this month, which is ending the last show of uh, the month with a special kind of sciencey look at some sci-fi movie or something that we found uh and i think this this week we're doing io i think it is pretty excited yes so you have that to look forward to next week uh but before we get into it uh this week's episode is brought to you by adventure dice if you need a new sweet set of dice for your favorite tabletop game or an awesome chainmail bag to hold them in check out adventuredice.ca and use the discount code quark q-u-a-r-k to get 10 percent off your purchase so, what? yes, always good to get money off, and it's a way to help support the show. Uh, we also have a cool, uh, I don't know if I'd call it a review, but I guess mention uh, in Twitter from Morgan from one of our fellow Podfix shows, Bad Reception. They listened to our Apollo episode uh, the week before last and said, quote, this episode was absolutely stellar pun only kind of intended <laughs> so uh thank you for listening and for that great uh kind of twitter review there we we definitely appreciate it definitely um, appreciate the feedback yes also we are still doing our patreon run so you can join our patreon at patreon.com slash dash of science uh, you can join at the one two or five dollar level and get a uh a ticket one per, or I guess two per dollar that you spend uh, for an entry into the drawing for a stainless steel coffee gator uh, French press. That's pretty cool. French press? Yes, yes. And then, of course, before we get into the main show, I do have some news for you. Uh, goodbye opportunity. Have you heard about this? I have not. This is the opportunity that's on the on Mars, correct? Yes, this is a uh, rover opportunity. So NASA has officially said goodbye to the Mars Opportunity rover, the little rover that could, operating for near 15 years past its original 90-day mission. That's crazy. Isn't it, though? Opportunity, affectionately called Oppie, has had several near bouts with death uh, to include a 2014 incident when engineers thought the rover was on its last wheels before an unexpected windstorm occurred in what is referred to as a cleaning event. A uh, cleaning event is essentially when uh, wind or some form of storm uh, clears off the solar sails and increases the battery power. 
That's pretty cool. Yeah, so usually you can expect somewhere between a 4 to 5% increase in battery power. In 2014, a storm occurred that increased the power by 70% that's overnight. A, that's yes. amazing. It's the largest cleaning event ever recorded and is probably the reason why uh, we are saying goodbye to Opportunity in 2019 instead of much, much sooner. Uh, unfortunately, no cleaning event came to the rescue this time around. The solar cells preventing power recharging since contact was lost last June, June of last year, and with the Martian winter coming along where temps on the planet can be as low as 195 degrees Fahrenheit. Wow. Uh, that's minus 125 Celsius for scientists and the other 194 countries in the world. Uh, <laughs> the batteries are expected to be completely dead and unable to recharge. Uh, NASA did try for several months to wake the rover with various songs they dubbed Opportunity Wake Up, uh, which is actually now a public pl uh, published playlist on Spotify, so you can listen to that and Is it any cry. good? There's a lot of good songs on there. Uh, I can't remember what any of them are offhand, but you can look them up. Uh, the last transmission from Opportunity, however, was very sad. It is, my battery is running low and it's getting dark. Oh, that's really sad. It is very sad. And I tell you, humans are very, very good at humanizing uh, non-living objects. Technology uh, Yes. And between uh, all of this stuff going on, all the discoveries we've, we've had with Opportunity, and, I mean, it even has its own Twitter account run by somebody that's kind of quirky and sarcastic and hilarious. People have really become uh, attached to this rover. In it's fact, a shame we can't go get him. You know, I was just going to say, today I saw a funny meme online, uh, a change.org petition to send Matt Damon to Mars to rescue Opportunity. Well, getting rid of Matt Damon can't not be <laughs> oh, a bad thing. Oh, come on. <laughs> also have some really cool uh, new inventions. Uh, the Chalmers University of Technology in Sweden has developed an electrochemical process to remove mercury from water. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, so it works by extracting the heavy metal ions from water by encouraging them to form kind of an alloy with another metal. And the electrode oh. is made of uh, platinum. It kind of draws the mercury out of the water to form a platinum-mercury alloy and removes the contamination from the water. So it's, like, safe to drink after? Uh, at least as far as mercury goes. <laughs> I can't speak for anything else that may be in the water. Well, I assume it, it doesn't cause it to be undrinkable. Nope. The alloy is very stable, so there's no risk of recontamination. Uh, it's also recyclable. So the entire process can be powered by solar cells, which means it's an awesome, effective way to clean up contaminated water sources pretty much anywhere and, and make them clean for drinking, at least with respect to the mercury. And that was, I thought this was pretty cool, but I wasn't really sure like how important this actually was, like as far as mercury goes in water. Uh, so I looked up the stats, and according to a report by the World Health Organization in 2005, uh, it showed that while only a very small amount of groundwaters and, and shallow wells surveyed in the U.S. exceeded the maximum contamination levels, which is two micrograms per liter, I think. Is that uh, a lot? I mean... You know, with toxins, it's really about the specific thing and, and and the dose, right? So some things are toxic at very small amounts and some things are toxic at very large amounts, right? Uh-huh. Water is toxic at some level and that level is much, much higher than mercury. So uh, is two micrograms per liter a lot? It is for mercury. <laughs> I just mean like, like if I put it in a cup, could I tell how much it was? Uh, no. Okay. That's what I wanted to know. So, uh... 
so anyways, while several of these things in the U.S. aren't very high, there are several test sites globally which have been found with very high concentrations, uh, like the wells in, uh, I think it's pronounced Uzuashima Island in Japan, and even an entire lake system in Canada has mercury levels uh, too high to consider safe for drinking. Huh. So it'll be very cool for things like that. That is very cool. Yep. Now if they could just make bottled water not taste like sewage. <laughs> it depends on which bottled water you're drinking, I think. Yeah, we probably shouldn't put down the bottled water. No, especially not here. <laughs> uh, this week we don't have a no it wasn't aliens entry uh, because I didn't have enough time to research it and make sure that I do in fact believe that no it wasn't aliens, which is a key <laughs> part <laughs> of this section. Uh, but I was thinking about maybe moving this section as kind of a bonus material on the Patreon, just a quick two minute episode. What do you think about that? That sounds cool. Yeah. And that way we can actually put some time to d- discussing whatever it is that we're talking about instead you... of. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, are, are you sure you can talk for just two minutes? Oh, I can talk for a long time and just take the best two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you'll get a minute. Oh, wow. <laughs> Look at me go. Yep. Uh, but that's all kind of for updates this week. Now we're going to get into the main part of our show, which is about the Disaster Challenger, which was the first loss of human life in the space program since the Apollo mission and the first loss in actual flight. <laughs> So I think we discussed this last time, but there's only been like three times that we've had issues, right? Uh, In the U.S. space program, yes, there's been three disasters, the Apollo, the Challenger, and the Columbia. That's actually a pretty good record considering everything. It it really is. I mean, overall, and as you'll hear when we discuss this about some of the decisions that were made and some of the safety stuff, stuff that while the exact issues didn't remain a problem after Challenger, the mindset that made them issues continued on and were actually part of the Columbia problem and what ultimately led to the retirement of the shuttle program. Wow. Uh, Yeah, there's... I mean, we, at least from my experience within NASA, are very risk adverse today. Uh, And I think a lot of that has to do with these three incidents. I could see that. I could see how that would have that effect. Mm -hmm. So January 28th, 1986. It's like two months before I was born. Well, oh yeah, that's the same year. I was going to say a different year, but no, that is. That is two months before you were born and, and within a couple of days, huh? That's crazy. Mm-hmm. So NASA Shuttle Orbiter Mission STS-51L, the 10th flight of the Space Shuttle Challenger, one of the most media-covered launches due to the astronaut Christine McAuliffe's status as the first civilian to fly into space under the new Teacher in Space Project, uh, unveiled by President Ronald Reagan. So they were going to send more teachers into space? That was the plan, yes. And then they haven't done it again since then? Nope. Interesting. This was the first and last time, uh, understandably. The hope was to increase public interest, and the result was an immediate end to the program, in spite of the president's statement that it would continue. Huh. So, yeah. Uh, And so the flight STS-51-L is kind of interesting. So that stands for STS's Shuttle Transportation System. Okay. Right? And the first numbers is the fiscal year of of the decade. Uh, so the second was, the second number was launch location. So one for Kennedy, two for Vandenberg Air Force Base here in California, which is interesting because there was never actually a launch from here. Huh. Yeah. Um, and then the letter was which launch of the year it was. And, uh, so also the fiscal year, by the way, is, uh, the end of October, uh, through September. So 
I hate that we have so many years. I know. And there's a Julian calendar. There's a fiscal year. There's, you know, whatever. Other but, stuff. Yes, all the other things. Regular. So many calendars. Gregorian calendar. Chinese calendar. Mayan calendar. I know I use that one often. <laughs> yes, we should definitely use yes. the Mayan calendar. Uh, anyway, so a one on this scale actually means October, not January. All right. And there's an interesting rumor behind why this was done. Uh, it was done supposedly... Uh, because the NASA administrator, James Beggs, was afraid of the number 13 and did not want to have a mission STS-13. So the 13th mission, which was STS-41C, created their own Black Cat mission patch. They also landed on Friday the 13th. Very interesting. It's a very cool story. Unfortunately, it is not really true. <laughs> oh, I was going to say, it's, uh, that's really weird, yeah, actually. The like, reason for the change was was actually because they expected to have uh, more frequent launches and had anticipated an additional 50 launches a year from Vandenberg at the time. And so they wanted a better way of keeping track of uh, when the launch was and, and where it was coming from. That's a pretty lofty goal. It is. And it's kind of interesting, but this rumor was so well-believed uh, that like I mean that's why these astronauts created this this black cat kind of thing and and it's referenced by several astronauts at the time in books and stuff so strange yep but uh, back to the Challenger uh, so the crew consisted of Commander Francis R Scobie born May nineteenth nineteen thirty nine in Clayalum is that correct Washington Clayalum Washington native uh, graduated from Auburn High School Washington in nineteen fifty seven. Immediately enlisted into the United States Air Force, attended night school, and finished up his bachelor's in aerospace engineering before being commissioned in 1965. Attained the rank of lieutenant colonel in the United States Air Force. Attended the USAF Aerospace Research Pilot School here at Edwards Air Force Base. Like I said, that was the path to becoming an uh, instrument, an astronaut at the time. Are you having more issues? I am. I'm not speaking well today. Uh, And he was selected for the NASA Astronaut Corps in 1978. So he previously had flown as a pilot for Challenger on mission STS-41C. So this is actually only his second mission as pilot. That's crazy. Yep. And then there was pilot Michael Smith, who was born in April 30th, 1945 in Butefort, North Carolina. Graduated East Carter High School in 63 and went on to receive a BS in Naval Science from the U.S. Naval Academy in 67. What exactly is that? Uh, You know, I found in military schools that it's often not clear what the degrees are so naval science from the best that i can tell is essentially the pared down versions of the various different fields of sciences that you would need to be a naval officer okay it's usually what happens right so they'll take uh for an example when i was in the military in the army i was a combat engineer uh, and we dealt with explosives. So in order to do that stuff, they would handpick s- the specific formulas and stuff needed to calculate the correct amount of explosives for whatever job you were doing. And that's what they would teach you. Uh, so that would be my best uh, guess as to what naval sciences is. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, there was actually, in my master's program, a guy from the Air Force who had a bachelor's degree in science. In science? Yes. <laughs> from the uh, Air Force. Or not, was it Air Force? This it is Air coming Force from the guy who's getting a degree in space studies. Hey, that's a legitimate degree. Thank you. Master's space degree. studies. Yes, I am studying space. <laughs> Specifically Astronomer. engineering. 
No, no, no. It's because it's a uh, where you can take multidisciplinary degree, right? So there are hard engineering. Like there's legitimate like aero, or not aerodynamics, but uh, astrodynamics and orbital science and orbital mechanics courses, which require actual background in physics and stuff. But then there are also like history courses and uh, management courses and stuff like that. Overall, it's a good program. Thank you for putting down my master's program. Oh, I just have to mess with you whenever I can. <laughs> but uh, anyways... So after his aeronautical engineering uh, degree, which he got a master's in after uh, his U.S. Naval Academy safe science degree, <laughs> uh, he became a naval aviator where he flew A-6 intruders and completed a tour in Vietnam. After the war, he went to the U.S. Naval Test Pilot School in 74 and was selected as an astronaut in 1980, and this was his very first mission as an astronaut. 1980. Yep, two years before I was born. Crazy. Mission Specialist Randolph McNair, born October 21st, 1950 in Lake City, South Carolina, received his Ph.D. in physics from MIT and was nationally recognized for his work in laser physics. He was selected for astronaut training in 78 and flew on STS-41B and was only the second African-American to fly in space. Oh, that's cool. Yes. Uh, and this is about the time where we started seeing a lot more actual scientists in space programs, uh, you know, in the shuttle era as opposed to initially where it was just purely military. Pilots. Yeah. Uh, and before becoming an astronaut, he was actually a staff physicist at Hughes Research Labs in California, uh, which while currently is owned by General Motors, was originally created by Howard Hughes in the 1940s. Who's Howard Hughes again? Howard Hughes was like the father of modern avionics or air flight, I guess I should say, not avionics. Uh, like there's the Wright brothers, obviously we know who they are, but Howard Hughes had all sorts of crazy ideas and stuff. And, uh, I think he's, he's the one that like disappeared and there was a big, uh, thing about like, was he crazy? Where did he go? What happened to him? I don't know. I'd have to check that out. Be interesting to do a, a short on though. He's a pretty interesting guy from what I do know. Interesting. Yep. Uh, then we have mission specialist on Azuka. Born June 24th, 1946 in Kealikekua. Wow, good <laughs> I job. I tried to write that out so I could pronounce it easy. Uh, Kealikekua. Kealikekua. Is this in like Hawaii? It's Island? in Hawaii, yes. Okay. Uh, so he was the first Asian American and the first person of Japanese ancestry to reach space. Very he cool. He a Bachelor's of Science in Aerospace Engineering and a Master's of Science. Previously flew on Discovery Mission STS-51C. Uh, he was selected in 1978 for the astronaut program and also had previously worked on the uh, experimentation team and the orbiter test team uh, and launch support crew at Kennedy Space Center. That's uh, a good record. Yep, yep. Uh, we also have mission specialist Judith Resnick, born April 5th, 1949 in Akron, Ohio. She was an electrical engineer, software engineer, biomedical engineer, and pilot before becoming an astronaut. That's really good for, like, a woman in this field. Yes, like That absolutely. seems like she actually did a good job of getting schooling done. Mm -hmm. She was the first Jewish American in space and the first Jewish woman of any nationality in space. Uh, the IEEE have the Judith Resnick Award, which is named after her for space engineering. Uh, and I'd like to point out that that's my specialty in my space studies is space engineering. See, it's a real thing. Aww. An astronaut had it. An astronaut did it first, so it's real. It's actually true. I actually found this degree because uh, an astronaut selected not this round, but the time before had a master's degree in space studies. So there you go. 
Uh, before all that, she had plans of being a concert pianist and actually turned down a place at Juilliard. So uh, instead of uh, doing that, she decided to study mathematics at, uh, what is it, Carnage, Carnage Mellon University? I don't know how to pronounce that. Uh, one of the s- only 16 girls in history of the U.S. to have attained a 100% score on the SATs. That's amazing. Yes. Uh, she made mission specialist at age 28. 28. 28 years old. Uh, and she previously flew on the Discover mission. So we're going from purely uh, top of the line military people to like the cream of the crop of scientists and engineers uh, in the United States are who uh, astronauts were at this time. Not that they are less now, but it is, <laughs> in my opinion, slightly easier to make it into the astronaut corps today than it was in the 80s. You think I can make it? Um, so then we have payload specialist Gregory <laughs> Jarvis, born August 24th, 1944 in Detroit, Michigan, graduated from Mohawk Central High School. And I was reading that and thinking, man, I bet they can't name it uh, that anymore. And sure enough, it has been renamed to Gregory B. Jarvis. Oh, wow. Uh, so they named the school after him. That's quite a nice thing. Um, yes, it is. So he received his bachelor's degree in electrical engineering in 73 and was honorably discharged as a captain in the U.S. Air Force in 1973. Uh, payload specialists are not NASA employees. They are actually representatives from companies selected to work with a specific payload that's going to be flying on that uh, flight. So they have an expertise in it. What kind of payloads do they take? It's whatever it is that's being developed by a company, whether it's some sort of, you know, uh, software or some sort of hardware that needs to be deployed or a satellite or whatever. I don't know why, but I was picturing like cars and elephants and Um, and such. No. (laughs) So those are generally experiments which are uh, run by the mission specialists. Ah, okay. Uh, So they are re... Uh, what was I going to say? Oh, Jarvis was on the mission representing Hughes Aircraft, of all places. So, mm. there you go. Uh, all of the crew members' bodies were discovered in the crew compartment, by the way. Uh, and specialist, payload specialist Jarvis's actually floated away right when they found it. And they didn't find it again until the very, very last uh, possibility, April 15th, 1986, uh, it was located like this was the last day of salvage. So it was kind of nice that they were able to find it. Just a little tidbit of knowledge there. That's really sad. It is very sad. Uh, and then we have payload specialist Krista McAuliffe. She was born September 2nd, 1948 in Boston, Massachusetts. And this is the front page story of the Challenger disaster. President Reagan had announced a teachers in space program in hopes of increasing the public's interest in launches. She was the first and last teacher to fly as a civilian. Uh, Krista was a social studies teacher, so uh, she also was, uh, I think, a history in English. And at the time of selection, she was a teacher at the Concord High School in New Hampshire. They had planned, essentially, for her to do two different, I guess, lectures or uh, classes, basically, from space while on the mission. Oh, that's really cool. Interesting enough, while reading uh, up for this, I found out that the teacher that was selected as a backup for her, which I can't remember her name, actually became a teacher in Idaho after the disaster uh, and then later became a legitimate NASA astronaut. Not to say that she wasn't a legitimate astronaut, but she was selected as a teacher for this program, whereas the other lady actually went through astronaut candidacy and was selected. 
uh, and actually flew in missions in early 2000s. Do we know anything about why they picked her? Like, was it like a raffle drawing? I'm not was really sure. Like... I know there was a lot of, uh, I can't remember the exact number. There was a lot of people who applied for this. I don't know what the criteria were for who was selected, to be honest. All right. So the other teacher that was selected as her backup actually became a professor at Boise State University. Uh, which, for those of you out there who don't know, is where I'm from. Uh, the city, not the university. <laughs> you were born went there. To university of Idaho. Woo, go Vandals! Or something. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so she was actually a professor there when I was there, and I didn't even know any of that. So there you go. That's pretty crazy. I'm surprised that you didn't know and had a chance to meet her. So that was the crew of the Challenger. Now I'll talk a little bit about the craft. So. The craft was a space shuttle. The space shuttle Challenger, designated OV-099, was the second orbiter in the space shuttle program built by Rockwell International and named after HMS Challenger, uh, which was a steam-assisted Royal Navy Pearl-class Corvette, the ship, not the car, uh, in which uh, it did a grand tour of the world covering 68,000 nautical miles between 1873 and 1876. That's interesting that they chose a ship to name it after. Mm-hmm. And you'll see that actually a lot. The uh, the most of the, I don't know if most, but some of the shuttles were named after actual ships, which were named after other ships. It's kind of a, I don't know, I guess tradition, so to speak. It's just interesting because they're not ships they, per se. Well, it's strangely enough, spaceships actually have more in common with, say, a submarine and a navy than they do with the Air Force. That makes a lot of sense, mm-hmm. actually. So, uh, and the ship that the Challenger was named after, uh, this grand uh, challenge, or whatever that you want to call it, was actually put together and organized by the Royal Society, which you know now you now know what that is. So I do. Yes. I remember. Uh, the shuttle actually spent 11 months undergoing vibration testing here in Palmdale, too, by the way. Oh, in yep. Palmdale? In Palmdale. Well, where? At where? Lockheed Martin. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. I was going to say, there's no NASA in Palmdale. Well, there actually is, Building 703. Oh, is it top secret? Did you just share all your secrets? It's not secret, but it is where Sophia is, the the 747 that's modified with the uh, with the telescope, essentially, in the back. They use it for flying at high altitudes because they found that the majority of the atmospheric uh, disturbances that make images of stars and stuff blurry mm-hmm. uh, comes in the first bit of the atmosphere so if you get up high enough you get rid of most of that and it's a lot easier because when you're done you can fly it back down and you can change out the equipment which you can't do with an orbiting telescope that's pretty cool yep so that's one of the things we do here um i learned something new there you go well that's what we do here (laughs) i mean hopefully the listeners are also learning something new but i guess if i can teach you something that works too right hey you know i'm here i'm you know part of what's (laughs) going on i'm doing stuff yeah uh so it left palmdale and actually came over here to edwards before being delivered to kennedy space center on july 5th 1982 53 days before i was born just for those keeping track crazy yep uh, the Challenger completed 10 missions, traveled over 25 million miles while completing 995 orbits around the Earth and deployed 10 satellites over its 62 days in space. That's a lot of satellites. Yes. Another interesting thing to note, of its 10 flights, seven of them landed here at Edwards. So why do they land here but they don't take off here? Uh, well, 
the easiest answer of why they don't take off here has to do with how you have to launch in order to get up the uh, speeds to make orbit, right? Uh, you have to launch essentially towards the east. Uh, and if you launch towards the east from the west coast, you are traveling over top of populated areas, uh, which gives you a very large chance of doing a lot of damage if something were to happen. Your debris field essentially is over a lot of populated areas. So that's why they don't actually launch from here. And as far as landing, is, it's a couple different reasons. One, it's very easy when you're coming in off that trajectory going that same direction because we're on the west coast. But two, you can actually find this area from orbit in space. I don't know if I've ever showed that to you. Yeah, it has the big circular... Uh, nope, that's actually not big enough to see from space. Oh, okay. So if you take the combined area of where Edwards Air Force Base is, of our little town here, and, and kind of this part of the Antelope Valley, it actually forms a really large desert-looking arrowhead that is, uh, it, when you're looking at it from orbit, it almost looks like it's pointing towards where the landing strip is on Edwards. That's pretty funny. So, yeah, you can see it literally and guide yourself to it from space. So if you're looking at the globe, you can find that in California, Southern California, uh, just north of L.A., and you can zoom in. And as you zoom in, you can look and go straight to the uh, dry uh, lake bed here at Edwards Air Force Base. That's very cool. So, yeah, astronauts love to land here because it's much easier. I can see that. Mm Mm-hmm. And it sounds safer. It is. Uh, The landing strip at... uh, in Florida is actually covered on both sides, not covered, but surrounded on both sides by like um, marsh or swamp or whatever you would call it out there, alligator land. Uh, so not a lot of room for mistakes out there. Yeah, that doesn't sound fun. Mm-mm. Hey everyone, this is Tof, host of Gravity Beard, a podcast featuring interviews and discussions on a wide range of topics. In each episode, I'll either interview a special guest or we'll convene our typical Algonquin roundtable of brilliant minds. Occasionally, we'll even be joined by the host of one of your other favorite podcasts. Then every other week, my buddy Adam stops by for an installment of This Week Today. Whatever we do each week, we promise you'll be entertained. You can find Gravity Beard on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else quality podcasts are sold. And you can always find us and other indie pods in the Underdog Podcast community on Facebook. We're also a member of the Podfix Network. Come check us out. Gravity Beard. It's what your ears will want to be listening to. Hey, citizen scientists. As you know, I love to support independent artists and creators. I also love podcasting and the community of people I've met while doing it. Back at the end of 2017, I was lucky enough to get to go to TwitchCon, where I met the artist over at Cave Geek Art. He does amazing leatherwork by hand, burning and painting with pigment and bone tip. He does comic covers, portraits, maps from fantasy games and books, and all sorts of other cool stuff too. Recently, he did a set of pieces based on the 17th century astronomer Johannes Hevelius' drawings of the astrological constellations. I picked up a couple of them myself. You can check out his work at cavegeekart.com and I've even managed to work out a special deal just for Dash of Science listeners. Use a special code DASH20 to get 20% off your entire order between now and the end of February. So check it out and support a great independent artist. So during the space shuttle design process in 1971, several engineers reported on the safety hazards of using the dual O-ring configuration within the two solid rocket boosters 
right? So the boosters were constructed in seven sections and they were joined with three what they call field joints via two rubber O-rings. Now the ones that weren't that were hard uh, welded and stuff, so there was no issues there. But these ones had to be uh, joined later on in the assembly uh, rather than at the factory. That's why they're put together differently. Okay. Uh, so engineers from Marshall wrote, wrote several letters to the manager of the Solid Rocket Booster Project about their concerns about how certain things could happen to potentially cause issue here. Uh, but they were never passed on to the contractor, and mm. overall the uh, build was approved. Um, so there was almost immediately evidence of erosion observed as early as the second shuttle mission flight. Uh, extensive erosion basically could allow a path for flame to pass through, uh, busting the joint and destroying the booster and shuttle. So so this, why was nothing done? Well, uh, it's a very good question. It's essentially, it comes down to when you're doing a project, one of the things you have to do is a risk matrix, right? So you have to figure out all of the risk that's possible. And this risk matrix, I don't know if this is necessarily the method they used at the time, uh, and we're kind of moving away from this method now, but it's a good example or at least idea so that you can conceptualize the idea of doing risk analysis. But essentially what you do is you find a risk and you find out how, uh, I guess, catastrophic this risk is. Is this something that just sucks or is this something that's going to completely destroy uh, everything, right? So you find where it is on that. And then you find how likely is it to happen? Is this a once in a million years event or is this probably going to happen every time you launch event? And between those two things, you get a risk, right? A number that says it's, it's this likely to happen and it has this. And then from there, you do things to mitigate that risk to bring it down to whatever level you need to. And either you get it down low enough to where it doesn't matter or they sign off a waiver and saying, yes, we are accepting this risk. And that's essentially where they were at at this point. Uh, they felt that everything that they saw at the time essentially made this risk not high enough for them to worry about at that time. That really sucks. That, it does. It really failed them. Yes. So after the discovery mission, uh, I think it was, I think it was STS 41 D. I can't remember the exact number, but a minor flame out was discovered, uh, but it didn't make it past the second O-ring. Uh, and because the damage was minor, it was decided to basically be an acceptable risk by the contractor. Uh, I think it's called Theocal, uh, the Theocal engineers. Uh, and after the event, this is kind of considered the first red flag mistake. Uh, I guess be having letters written that it was a concern wasn't really because engineers i guess write letters that they think are concerning that don't always end up being concerning okay. but this was actual evidence that a flame out occurred uh but it like um, i said there's two o-rings together and it only damaged the first o-ring so the second o-ring was fine and it did its job so they they thought it was an acceptable risk so explain the flame out so a flame out essentially what these o-rings are doing is sealing off so that the hot gases can't burst through the joint right so uh -huh. a flame out is essentially when some sort of damage happens to those O-rings that causes a path for flame to pass through that joint where it shouldn't be. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So kind of some early stuff in the craft design that was known but not necessarily, uh, I guess, 
paid attention to as much as maybe it should have been. Uh, and keep in mind that, I mean, between the time, this is the development of the space shuttle to begin with. All the space shuttles had this issue. This wasn't just a Challenger issue. Uh, and so we, the Challenger had flown 10 or nine other missions before this, uh, and Discovery had had missions, and the most they had seen was this one flame out that damaged the first O-ring. So, I mean, I don't, hindsight is twenty twenty, right? We can look at everything that happens and see all this stuff and see what led up to it and be like, wow, I can't believe they did that. But at the time, uh, you've got a lot of money. We're talking, you know, millions of dollars in this project invested uh, a national spotlight on you. If you decide to make a safety call that other people consider to be too conservative, you lose your job, right? Yeah. Why were there not more failures then with this O-ring system? Uh, we'll actually get into that when we start talking about the accident and how it happened. And it's kind of interesting. Essentially, uh, to summarize, it's a chain of mistakes that fixed themselves by happenstance that was later on even included within the process that these things happen and fix the problem, at least under the uh, environment in which they were occurring. Okay. Which sounds confusing, but I promise it'll make sense later. All right. I'll so trust you. the mission itself, STS-51-L, was the 25th mission in the U.S. Space Shuttle program, so 24 other missions occurred without issue. Uh, the mission was to observe Halley's, or Halley's Comet for six days, uh, as well as being the first teacher in space project mission. Other mission objectives included a deployment of a tracking data relay satellite, uh, the flight of a shuttle-pointed tool for astronomy, a fluid dynamics experiment, uh, phase partitioning experiments, basically just a bunch of different experiments, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then unofficially... I guess Mission Specialist McNair was going to have played the saxophone in space for uh, Jean-Michel Jarre's album Rendezvous, track number five. So that would have been interesting. They let him take it? I'm surprised. Yeah, so astronauts actually get an allotment of, it's pro- I'm not sure if it's weight, volume, or both, but of personal items that they can bring. That's it's really not, interesting. It's not a lot, but there's actually right now, I believe, permanently stationed a guitar on the International Space Station. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and it's kind of funny because you'll see people, uh, like occasionally people will play guitar on there and they'll do like videos and people are like, oh, this is proof that they're not really in space because sound doesn't travel in space, which is correct. Sound does not travel in space and it doesn't travel in space because there's no atmosphere and you need an atmosphere to carry sound waves, right? Mm-hmm. Well, the funny thing about having no atmosphere is that human beings can't breathe. <laughs> so within the ISS, we actually do have air and an atmosphere, which allows sound waves to travel freely just like they would here on Earth. No I way. I know. Crazy, right? Crazy. So, uh, yeah, so there's that. Uh, I guess their complaint is not really based on science. Weird. Yeah. But anyways, uh, so back to Challenger, pre-launch delays. The launch, and this is important because it leads up to a lot of the reason why maybe certain decisions were made. Uh, The launch was delayed first because of delays of the previous mission. Delays of the shuttle missions were actually quite common. And in launches in general, usually due to weather. 
which I mean, we've seen when we've gone out here to try and watch launches of like SpaceX, mm-hmm. uh, which is really cool. If you guys live down in Southern California, you know what I'm talking about. You can oftentimes see the launches of, of these things and they look really amazing at night. Uh, and of course, half the population thinks they're aliens, but you know, that's, <laughs> it is what it is. Not aliens. Not aliens. It will be an, a recurring event on not aliens. No, this was a SpaceX launch mm-hmm. or... Uh, I think a few years ago we had a Minuteman uh, missile launch. was pretty cool looking. As long as it wasn't a weather balloon. Right. No weather balloons. <laughs> but, yeah, so the second delay for Challenger was due to weather. Uh, and then there was another delay because the exterior access hatch, uh, an indicator that verifies that the hatch is locked, was malfunctioning. That seems important. Yes. Uh, And then they had another one because a stripped bolt was preventing the closeout crew from removing a closing fixture on the hatch. Uh, And then it was delayed again because of weather. (laughs) So uh, contractor Fiocal had a serious concern kind of about how the low temperature, which was starting to be an issue for their launches, might affect the boosters, especially given the amount of O-ring corrosion that they had already seen during uh, past post-launch analysis. So we talked about how immediately on the second launch of Discovery, they saw some erosion on that first O-ring. This is something that they began to consistently see in in other launches. Uh, And so an engineer by the name of Bob Ebling even wrote a memo in 1985 titled, Help! Exclamation mark, in order to get people to read, uh, which he described the risks of the low temperatures on O-rings. Uh, these specific O-rings. So I'm assuming this was low temperature launches. Uh, so uh, we'll talk about it in a little bit, but the O-rings, everything, everything, everything is rated for all sorts of environmental issues. And one of those things is temperature, right? So what rated means or certified sometimes is a terminology that's used is this is what temperature this has been tested to and is known to work. It doesn't mean that it won't work outside of that temperature. It just means we don't know. Uh, okay. And then sometimes we'll do things and actually have proof of what temperature ranges they definitely won't work at. Uh, so after receiving a weather report that stated that the temperature at the launch was going to be 18 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, they called the Theocal uh, engineers about it, who responded that they were only rated to be above 40 degrees Fahrenheit. And their quoted statement was, what business does anyone even have thinking about an 18-degree launch. We're in no man's land. And they recommended NASA delay the launch until it warmed up. Uh, NASA staff disagreed with this uh, and even went so far as to say that they were appalled by the recommendation. A lot of this had to do with the stress with how many times they had already had to delay this uh, launch. And I believe a comment was made, uh, like, what do you want us to do, wait till April, which... It's supposed to be a ridiculous time frame, I guess. Uh, <laughs> and this was mostly based on kind of their opinion that the presentation that the engineers gave was of really low quality and didn't support the conclusion that a delay was necessary. Uh, and an argument was made that even if the first O-ring failed, the second O-ring would seal. Uh, and later it was pointed out by astronaut Sally Ride during the Rogers Commission, which was a commission designed to kind of investigate and find out the leadership decisions and if they were right. Uh, it was pointed out that it is forbidden to rely on a backup for any component classified as criticality one. So criticality, criticality one means that if it fails, it will destroy the orbiter. 
So if there's a criticality one, you can't rely on a backup working. You have to fix that in a different way. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. And they didn't do that for the shuttle? They did not. Not at this time, anyways. T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6. We have main engine start. 4, 3, 2, 1. And liftoff. Liftoff of the 25th Space Shuttle mission, and it has cleared the tower. Good roll program confirmed. Challenger now heading down range. Engines beginning throttling down now at 94%. Normal throttles uh, for most of the flight, 104%. We'll throttle down to uh, 65% shortly. percent three engines uh, running normally three good fuel cells three good APUs velocity 2257 feet per second altitude 4.3 nautical miles downrange distance three nautical miles so on launch it seemed nominal uh, although in the post accident review many things were found to have gone wrong such as the hydrogen vent arm failed to latch back, uh, but it didn't hit anything, so that was kind of seen as not being an initial cause. There's also several kick springs on the hold-down bolts. Those are just little springs that help uh, put the bolts where they need to go. Um, they were completely missing on several of the uh, bolts, uh, but none of this contributed to the accident. But it kind of gives a good idea as to how many issues the shuttle program had with maintenance and analysis and stuff like that. I, you would assume people are checking these things. Like, there's got to be someone responsible for making sure these things are properly put together. There are, but uh, the problem with doing anything that's new is no one's done it before. And so when you're thinking of your procedures and things that you should check, you can only think of what you can think of. And sometimes you add things as you find them because a problem occurred or you found it by accident that there was an issue and then that becomes part of the procedure. So I don't know if these weren't checked because nobody had thought of it yet or if just somebody was failing to do so. Um, but unfortunately that is, that is the risk that you have in, in innovative engineering and building projects that nobody has done before, which is what the space shuttle project was, right? Nobody had, had done this before. Yeah. Um, it seems in hindsight, again, like I said, it's 2020. There's a lot of problems we see that we think should have been fixed. But when you're that engineer or those project managers at the time, you know, what do you do if you didn't think of it, right? I guess. Um, I just I feel like someone really dropped the ball. I mean, yeah. And, and a lot of the conclusions are that management really did drop the ball with a lot of the decisions that were made, especially going against the recommendations of the engineers who literally designed this part that failed. Uh, so at just 0.678 seconds after liftoff, puffs of dark gray smoke were emitted from the right-hand solid rocket booster. Engines throttling up, three engines now at 104%. Challenger, go and throttle up. Challenger, go and throttle up. One minute, 
15 seconds. Velocity 2,900 feet per second. Altitude 9 nautical miles. Downrange distance 7 nautical miles. Flight controllers here looking very carefully at the situation. Obviously a major malfunction. We have no downlink. It was determined that this was due to an opening and closing of the aft field joint, uh, and the booster's casing had basically ballooned under the stress of ignition, which caused the metal parts of the casing to bend away from each other at that joint. Now, this is important to remember later. Okay. Uh, and this opened up a gap through which 5,000 degree Fahrenheit gas was able to leak. Uh, this was not the first time that this had happened, but previously the first O-ring was able to shift and seal the gap after this. Uh, and while this was an example of something unexpected happening to fix an error, it was considered acceptable and the design specs were changed to include this phenomenon, which they called extrusion. So essentially, damage to the joint occurred, allowing this 5,000 degree Fahrenheit gas to leak which caused the o-ring to erode in such a way that it was able to expand and seal off the hole okay and that was now just an expected thing to happen and was considered part of the process how crazy is that that is very crazy so this process was literally a catastrophic failure occurring that caused damage to the o-ring in such a way that the O-ring sealed off and, and fixed the damage part before it was too late and it destroyed everything. I can't even imagine being on an engineering team that thought this was an okay or an acceptable thing to do, especially on like a human-rated system. There's got to be a lot of guilt there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and unfortunately, because the cold weather, the O-rings hardened, which caused the time it took for this extrusion to occur to be much longer than normal which means that hole was getting bigger and it was too long in fact to seal on time. So the temp was below what they call the glass transition temperature. What is that? Uh, that is a temperature in which uh, amorphous solids like glass or polymers, uh, polymers are plastic, silicons, rubbers, etc. Uh, it's when they transition between being rubbery and when they are brittle. So it's not the same as like a rubber band out here that gets dry and stuff and brittle. Mm -hmm. That's a cause of moisture. This is a cause of just the temperature being so cold that the crystal structure of that object becomes in such a way that it's, it's no longer elastic, it's brittle. So these O-rings are so cold that they literally could not expand to seal off this hole. That's really, really unfortunate. Right. Uh, and it's just weird that so many of these things had to line up for something like this to occur. It's actually really amazing and lucky that it didn't occur long before this, like that so many things had to go wrong for this to happen. And I don't know if that is because of amazing engineering or just sheer luck, right? I'm kind of leaning towards sheer luck, considering that none of this was part of the original design on how it was supposed to work. Yeah, that's, it's all just happenstance, I think. Yep. So the first O-ring lost its elasticity and ability to seal because it was too rigid. The second O-ring was not in its seated position where it usually is to help if the first O-ring becomes too damaged. And this was because of the, men the metal bending from that ballooning that I told you about that was important that would come up later. Mm -hmm. So with no barrier to the gases, the O-rings vaporized uh, in a large section. Here's the next and crazy thing. Even that was fixed by an accident. 
So the aluminum oxide from the burned solid propellant temporarily sealed that damaged joint. Interesting. Yeah. So as per protocol, the rocket began to throttle down to prevent aerodynamic force overload. So when the engines originally uh, start up, the thrust actually goes to 104% of the max rated thrust. And this happens because after doing uh, numerous testing and stuff, they actually certified it that it could run at 104%, right? So in the, initially, it ramps up to 104%. And then as it gets off the pad and, and separates, it actually comes down to like 70%. And then they do some turning, and then after a little bit, they go back up to 104% to get that max thrust. Uh, so this is the space shuttle's main engine, by the way, which is a liquid-fueled cryogenic rocket. Uh, just what is that? It's just a liquid-fuel rocket, okay. essentially. Uh, the reason why that's important is because solid rockets can't be throttled or turned off. It's just a fuel, a solid fuel. You light it on fire, and it burns until it's done. But with liquid fuel, uh, you're mixing two things together an oxidizer and a and a fuel and you're burning that so you can shut those valves off or lessen the rate of flow to adjust your thrust basically okay so liquid rockets are safer in that they're easier to control but solid rockets are actually cheaper and and overall safer because it's less complex if that makes sense that does make so sense. they're more dangerous in an emergency but less dangerous in regular usage that's a hard line. It is. And, of course, you've also got all the uh, the different aspects of rocket fuels and how much energy and, and stuff like that to go into. But, essentially, this is what we were using at the time. So, uh, an unexpected plume began to form after launch. It became larger, and it was later revealed uh, to be a product of hot gas leaking through that growing hole in the right-hand uh, solid rocket booster joint. This is when it took off from... This is shortly after it took off. We're talking seconds. The entire thing between launch and breakup was, I want to say, 70 seconds. Okay. So not very long. Uh, and then an unexpected wind shear, which is wind coming at an angle uh, perpendicular. Uh, they weren't expecting. Basically shattered that makeshift oxide seal that I was talking about that formed earlier. Uh-huh. So yet another thing going wrong. If that wouldn't have happened, that seal might have held on long enough to safely get everything uh, to, for those solid rocket f- uh, boosters to burn completely and separate. Uh, so that's just yet another thing that happened that was unexpected. And for once, something not directly uh, the fault of somebody else, right? Yeah, for, uh, for a change. Yeah. So as the hole continued to grow, it kind of, or the plume, I'm sorry, as the plume continued to grow, it suddenly changed shape, right? So the shape of a plume uh, is based off of the uh, size of the hole, but also the material that's coming out and what the, what, like how, how dense that material is and other type of properties from whatever chemicals or whatever it is. Uh-huh. Uh, so it was unknown at the time why this happened, but in post-analysis, it was an indication that the leak uh, actually continued on up until it got to the liquid hydrogen tank at the back of the portion of the external tank. And so the pressure in that tank began to drop. Okay. So what's amazing is with all of this going on, Outside of this weird-looking plume, everything still appeared uh, nominal to the ground control and also to the shuttle crew. Uh, and so the ground control gave the shuttle permission to throttle up, which is what I was talking about earlier, where they throttle back up to that 104%. Uh-huh. Uh, and that was the last communication received from Challenger was acknowledging that command. Uh, they said, Roger, go at throttle up, and then there's no more uh, link uh, recording after that. 
and the actual very last thing heard was on a recording from inside the shuttle was pilot Michael Smith, and it simply said, uh-oh. Oh, no. Uh, and right at that point is when the vehicle began to break up. So the right solid rocket booster pulled away from the aft strut, which attaches to the external tank, uh, and then the aft dome, so the dome at the bottom, essentially, of liquid oxygen failed and kind of uh, exploded, or as they call it, produced a propulsive force. Uh, it slammed the tank uh, through uh, another tank in the forward part, uh, which at the same time, the booster rotated about the other attachment point. And so one booster was actually at an off angle from where it should be, uh, if that makes sense. So mm-hmm. you're getting thrust in a weird position. Okay, that's dangerous. Yes. So then there was basically a complete structural failure, which ruptured parts of the tank, which those uh, the oxidizer and the liquid fuel mixed and ignited, which created a fireball that enveloped the entire stack of the uh, rocket booster. Uh, and then the rotated thruster caused a force to be exerted at an incorrect angle, like we talked about, which resulted in a load factor of 20 Gs. Are you familiar with what a G is? I am not. So a G is the amount of force on your body at ground level from gravity. That's one G. So 20 Gs is 20 times that. Okay. So this part of the structure of the shuttle was only rated to sustain five Gs, and it was taking 20 Gs. So it actually ripped apart. And so this is actually a common misconception about the Challenger, right? So like I talked about earlier, how that part ignited and kind of had a fireball. Uh huh. Because when you watch the Challenger disaster, you see that fireball. So most people think the Challenger exploded. Okay, that's what I was uh, told. Yes, it actually did not explode. Uh, the fireball engulfed the shuttle, uh, but it it was actually ripped apart by aerodynamic forces, which is actually one of the same things that happened to Spaceship One here a couple of years ago. I don't know if you remember that that happened out here. I don't remember that. Yeah. So when you're going at really high speeds, like when you stick your hand out the window. You can feel the air, right? Yes. So if you're not in a, uh, I guess, going at it in a way that's aerodynamic, you're going to get forces on your body that will literally rip pieces apart. So that's That's actually what happened to the Challenger. Uh, The two solid rocket boosters are actually much stronger than that part of the shuttle. So they actually ended up separating and took off in uncontrolled flights until the range safety officer uh, manually, or I guess remotely, I should say, detonated those. Uh, once they got into a safe spot. So are you ready for the actual sad part? <laughs> it's like this wasn't the saddest part yet. Yes. So comparatively, everything that has happened so far is not the sad part. It's just the interesting part of why things occurred. The sad part is the crew cabin was actually very robust. And it actually survived all of this. That's it was amazing. designed to survive up to 20 PSI of pressure. Uh, and estimations show that it probably only got about five PSI exerted in, in all of this thing on the cabin itself where the crew was. Uh, so the cabin continued along a trajectory and was even seen exiting a cloud of gases at about 75 seconds after uh, launch or after liftoff, uh, which is about 25 seconds after the breakup. Uh, and it continued to go up. So the altitude of the crew cabin peaked at about 65,000 feet. Uh, and it was even in a stable flight, which if you know from our rocket launches, stable means it's not spinning or, or rotating or tumbling. Yeah. So they think that this might have been because of all the wiring off of it actually helped stabilize it. Interesting. Yeah. So it is believed that most, if not all of the crew, 
were still alive and conscious at this point. That's amazing. Yeah. So analysis of the wreckage afterwards showed that several of the personal egress air packs on the flight deck, uh, they're not really parachutes, but you can think of them like parachutes for airplanes. Okay. Uh, only they're more complex. But uh, several of them had actually been activated, which confirmed that at least some of the crew, uh, specifically if the packs were any indication, uh, Judith Resnick, uh, Ellison, Onizuka, and Michael Smith, uh, were actually activated. And the analysis of the air supply was also confirmation that there was enough consumption of air for 2 minutes and 45 seconds past the breakup of the, of the Challenger. And how can I tell that? Uh, just because they're able to recover uh, data sensors and stuff like that. Okay. I mean, because they don't breathe air from the outside. All the air is self-contained, and you have a certain amount of it, and you breathe at a certain rate that uses a certain amount of oxygen, right? Uh So the longer you're breathing, the more oxygen you use, and the level that was left was consistent with having people breathing for that long. Interesting. So that is uh, evidence essentially that people were alive, not necessarily conscious. Uh, but when they did an uh, analysis of the structure itself, it didn't show any signs of buckling, uh, which is what would have happened if there was instant depressurization. Because remember also that the capsule or the, the shuttle bay area of the crew was, was pressurized so that they could breathe. Yeah. Uh, so if there was a pressure leak, it was most likely a slow one. And if there was a slow pressure leak or no pressure leak, then there is a high probability that at least some of them were, were actually still conscious too. So together, this evidence points to the fact that at least some of the crew was alive and conscious all the way until impact. That's messed up. Yeah. The impact was 207 miles per hour into the ocean surface. Uh, And this is unsurvivable force. This is like 20 times the amount of force that a human being is capable of surviving. That's insane. Uh, At the end, the evidence of the exact cause of death is inconclusive because there's too many unknowns to positively determine like there's you know that some people were alive up to some point you know if things went a certain way it is possible for them to have been conscious but uh so they don't really know did they get any parts from that did it obliterate when it hit the water uh so (laughs) interestingly enough parts continue to fall and hit the water's surface for up to an hour after the breakup so there actually was quite a bit of stuff and we'll talk about the kind of the aftermath and the recovery of stuff But, uh, yeah, we'll do the aftermath now, I guess. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd planned to speak to you tonight to report on the State of the Union. But the events of earlier today have led me to change those plans. Today is a day for mourning and remembering. Nancy and I are pained to the core by the tragedy of the shuttle Challenger. We know we share this pain with all of the people of our country. This is truly a national loss. Nineteen years ago, almost to the day, we lost three astronauts in a terrible accident on the ground. But we've never lost an astronaut in flight. We've never had a tragedy like this. And perhaps we've forgotten the courage it took for the crew of the shuttle. But they, the Challenger 7, were aware of the dangers, but overcame them and did their jobs brilliantly. We mourn seven heroes. Michael Smith, Dick Scobie, Judith Resnick, Ronald McNair, Ellison Onizuka, Gregory Jarvis, and Krista Mikoloff. We mourn their loss as a nation together. The families of the seven, we cannot bear as you do the full impact of this tragedy. 
but we feel the loss and we're thinking about you so very much. Your loved ones were daring and brave and they had that special grace, that special spirit that says, give me a challenge and I'll meet it with joy. They had a hunger to explore the universe and discover its truths. They wished to serve and they did. They served all of us. We've grown used to wonders in this century. It's hard to dazzle us. But for 25 years, the United States space program has been doing just that. We've grown used to the idea of space, and perhaps we forget that we've only just begun. We're still pioneers. They, the members of the Challenger crew, were pioneers. And I want to say something to the schoolchildren of America who were watching the live coverage of the shuttle's takeoff. I know it's hard to understand, but sometimes painful things like this happen. It's all part of the process of exploration and discovery. It's all part of taking a chance and expanding man's horizons. The future doesn't belong to the faint-hearted. It belongs to the brave. The Challenger crew was pulling us into the future, and we'll continue to follow them. So the Challenger disaster occurred the day of the scheduled State of the Union address from President Reagan. Uh, and we just played that, so you heard that. Uh, but he actually postponed it to speak directly about the disaster. And uh, this address, which I only actually played a portion of, has been rated as one of the most significant speeches of the 20th century by scholars. That's crazy. It ends with a quote from the poem High Flight. So he says, We will never forget them, nor the last time we saw them this morning as they prepared for their journey and waved goodbye and, quote, slipped the surly bonds of earth to touch the face of God. Wow. Yes. So uh, recovery ships and rescue planes had to wait for a full hour for the debris to stop falling before they could enter the zone that the crew cabin had entered uh, into the water. And rescue operations for that next week were assisted by the Department of Defense and the U.S. Coast Guard and was the largest surface search in which the U.S. Coast Guard had ever participated in. And they were just searching for parts? Yeah, they, well, they were searching for everything. Uh, NASA didn't disclose the actual location of where it landed because they wanted to kind of discourage scavengers. And so uh, they actually, because people were buying out uh, radios to listen to the Coast Guard frequency, in fact, like all of the radio shacks in that area were completely sold out. So they had to use code names like Target 67 for crew cabin. And they referred to crew remains as Tom O'Malley. I couldn't find out why that's what they called it, but so that was their code name. Yeah, that's really weird. Mm -hmm. I guess it's hard to come up with code names on the spot. Yeah, I guess. I'm sure there's a meaning there. I just, I couldn't find what it was. Uh, so if anybody listening, if you know what the meaning of that was, uh, write in and let us know. I'd like to, I'd like to find out. Uh, so the crew compartment wasn't discovered until March 7th. So this launch occurred January 28th. Wow, that's uh, so crazy. So more than a month after the disaster, and inside the bodies of the astronauts were found with weeks and weeks of saltwater immersion and exposure to marine life. Uh, so to put it as not disgusting as possible, they were uh, in less than solid state and did not resemble much of human beings. I don't even know what to say. Yeah. Uh, some things were recovered, some personal effects. One of the things that they got was an American flag, which was sponsored by a Boy Scout troop, still sealed in its plastic container dubbed the Challenger flag. 
and a soccer ball from the personal effects locker of Onizuka, which was later flown to the International Space Station by astronaut Robert Kimbrough and is currently on display at the Clear Lake High School, I think it's called, in Houston. That's uh, crazy. And then all the non-organic debris, all the metal and stuff, was all buried uh, after the investigation in an empty missile silo at Cape Carnival. Why was it buried? Canaveral. Sorry, not Carnival. I don't know. Um, I think it was kind of a memorial. That's weird. Yeah, so it, was a, it wasn't a, like an active missile silo or anything. It's still weird. It is. Uh, and unfortunately, we're at the hour mark and we're running out of time. And there's so much more to learn about the investigation and what they call the Rogers Commission, which included Richard Feynman, the famed theoretical physicist, who was actually at the end uh, of his, his life at this point. He was seriously ill with cancer uh, at the time, but he agreed to help because he thought it was so important to find out what the root cause of this was. Uh, There's a bunch of U.S. House committee hearings, uh, several changes to the process and construction, such as adding a third O-ring, uh, and the creation of a new Office of Safety, Reliability, and Quality Assurance within NASA. So if you're interested in learning more, I highly encourage you to read up uh, on this event and into those things. Uh, but yeah, so that is the Challenger disaster. Pretty intense. Very intense. Yeah. So I'm going to end with the ending of President Reagan's speech on that day. And uh, we will see you next week with a much cheerier subject as we discuss the film IO. Good night. Goodbye. The crew of the Space Shuttle Challenger honored us for the manner in which they lived their lives. We will never forget them, nor the last time we saw them this morning as they prepared for their journey and waved goodbye and slipped the surly bonds of earth to touch the face of God. Thank you. Dash of Science is written and produced by 5 Hertz Labs. Music was written for the show by Ghost Tube Music. Dash of Science is a proud member of the Podfix Network. And remember, live, learn, build. This was a podcast from the Podfix Network. You can check out more shows like it at podfixnetwork.com.